Welcome to Wild Geese Work and Wonder, a podcast made in collaboration with the Wild Hope Center for Vocation at Pacific Lutheran University. I'm your host, Becca McAnally, a senior social work major here at PLU. On today's episode, I talk with Juliana Andrew and Chelsea Lindsley. Juliana hails from Anchorage, Alaska, and she's in her last semester at PLU. She's majoring in both religion and global studies with a concentration in international relations and a minor in the Peace Corps prep program. Juliana has studied away with PLU in Greece, Oxford, and Norway. In the fall, she plans to start a dual degree program pursuing her JD and her master's of theological studies. Chelsea grew up in Iowa, but now calls California home, and she graduated from PLU in 2010 with her bachelor's in anthropology and global studies with a concentration in development and social justice. While at PLU, she studied away in Norway, South Africa, and Namibia, and she served as a sojourner advocate at the Wong Center. She then got her JD at George Washington University, studying international and environmental law and studying abroad at the University of Oxford. Chelsea now works at the Berkeley-based nonprofit As You Sow, where she handles environmental and toxic exposure litigation. She is also the founder of the Law School Project, which coaches students who are seeking purpose-driven careers in law. I've brought Chelsea and Juliana together for a conversation because of their shared interests in law, global studies, and the learning that comes from travel and cross-cultural experiences. But this is actually the first time they've met. Welcome, Chelsea and Juliana, to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for for having us. (laughs) Um, So as you know, this is a show about vocation. So the first question I'm going to ask you, um, what does vocation mean to you and how does that contribute to your sense of purpose or calling in the world? I guess I'll start since I have more life experience. (laughs) Um, So I've always, I mean, even when I was at PLU, I really tried to follow my heart and do the things that really called to me and, and fulfilled a sense of interest and a sense of purpose within me. Now that I am 10 years out of college, I've been in the workforce, I've been, you know, in a pretty competitive job market. Um, I've, I've learned, you know, you can't always, you know, have the dream job or you don't always, you know, get into, you know, exactly where you want to be or be working in exactly the organization that you want to be working in. But there's always a way for you to fulfill um the, the, the parts of you that, that are just you, that are authentically you. There's always a way to express, if you're a problem solver, there's a way to express being a problem solver. If you are called to advocacy, there's always a way for you to be an advocate. Um, so that's really, I think, what vocation is about in my experience. Yeah, so it's less about a specific job position and more about finding it wherever you are. Right. Yeah. What about for you, Juliana? So I'm um, going to use the tour guide definition, which is um, <laughs> vocation is where your greatest passion meets the world's greatest need. Um, and even that, it's sort of vague. <laughs> and so um, I've sort of grappled with that. Um, you know, I became a tour guide my first year at PLU and learned this phrase, and I just kind of repeated it without really um, knowing what it meant. Um, and I think 
you know, much like Chelsea said, it's this, um, this like tug almost, you know, like you, you know what your greatest passion is. Um, even if you can't pinpoint, oh, my greatest passion is international relations or my greatest passion is religion. Um, it could be something broader like advocacy um, or something like that. Um, and then the tricky part is pinpointing the need in the world um, and kind of relating those two together, I found. Um, and I've met with um, Laurie several times to be like, okay, be a sounding board for me. Like, let me just kind of word vomit, like everything that I'm feeling and what I think maybe my vocation is. Um, and, and then kind of summarize it and like spin it back to me so that I can um, understand it more. So I guess that's what vocation is for me is like this really big, like brain cloud <laughs> um, that I know is there and I can feel its presence like pushing me one way or another um, and then kind of distilling that into what that looks like in your life um, or in my life is um, is the, the journey <laughs> I guess yeah yeah and that yeah that good, good old uh, Frederick Beekner definition the um, world's greatest need and your your deep gladness yeah um and I also heard you say that you know having someone else listen to you is super important um because I think a lot of times we have a hard time seeing what's in ourselves and we need other people to to tell us um what they're seeing in us and then that can help the discernment process um kind of like seeing outside of ourselves like a bird's eye view <laughs> Um, so both of you have an interest in law. What led there? Um, and what areas in particular are you both interested in? Um, I don't know, Chelsea, do you want to start or that? Do you have an answer, Juliana? I can start. I'm happy to start. Um, so I was never somebody who thought that I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't, you know, have that passion in junior high or high school like a lot of people do. Um, I actually only decided to pursue law school when I was a senior at PLU, um, when I was starting to look at the next steps beyond PLU. And I knew that I wanted to continue in international education of some sort. And so I started looking at graduate programs and in international development and international education. Um, and what I was finding was that these programs in international human rights law were really calling to me. So kind of listening to that inner voice that we were talking about. And so that's what I decided to pursue. And I found several programs um, at different law schools across the country and some abroad that sounded really exciting and um, just kind of went for it. I didn't really have a have a sense of, of what the practice of law looked like. Um, so I, I worked in a law firm for three years after going to PLU before I went to law school, but um, it's, it's turned out to be a, a good path for me, I think, despite, you know, how competitive and saturated the market is and all that stuff they'll tell you about the practice of law, but um, did that answer the question? Yeah. I think there's another part. Yeah, to it. <laughs> the, you're really drawn there by an interest in international relations and human rights. Right. Yeah. What about you, Juliana? Yeah, so I actually entered my first year at PLU as a clear to sales work major. 
Um, and I think I was drawn to that major um, because of helping people, like the mm-hmm. relation that you have with people and making a tangible difference in their lives. Um, I took a social and public policy class with my yep. <laughs> and I absolutely loved it. Um, and I loved the history. I loved the law and, and the impact that it was having um, to this day. I mean, we talked about Elizabethan poor laws from way, way back that are still having an impact today. Yeah. Um, just in the way that they influence things. Um, and, and then I realized that as a social worker, um, my job was largely a connector role like being yeah being a listener and then connecting my clients to resources and um and I realized that with my personality I might get frustrated um with uh with the system I was like so um I kind of want to be in the system (laughs) like maybe trying to work on change in that way so um I started thinking about law my first year at PLU. Um, and then I had an interaction with somebody that was really discouraging. And so I kind of backed off law for a little bit. Um, and then- Why do they always do that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I kind of- Be a lawyer. I'm here to tell you to be a lawyer. It's <laughs> great. It's a great calling. Yeah, so then that was when I declared my religion and global studies majors. Um, and just started learning and ended up kind of back down the law path. Um, now I'm looking at um, sort of the intersection of spirituality and the law um, mm. and what that means, like what does that even look like, um, and how can we work on that intersection um, to make sure that we're addressing issues of oppression, especially in things like Indigenous communities um, and other uh minority religious groups um sort of around the world so i've been interested in international law um i keep telling people um like i'm working in an adoption um firm right now like uh, for an adoption attorney um and that's been super eye-opening so i'm trying not to like pigeonhole myself into a certain type of law like before i enter law school because i know that like i don't know all the fields of law <laughs> and so i feel like i'm gonna get there and be like this this is really great and mm-hmm. really know that this existed um anyway so that's the roundabout story <laughs> wow there's a lot there and i want to put a pin in that because there are a couple things i want to come back to the first thing that you said that really resonated with me is that you were noticing that as social workers, we are resource connectors, um, but there's little power that we have to really change the system. Um, and I have experienced a lot of the same thing. I'm in my, my senior year as a social work major and I am, you know, I have an internship at a refugee resettlement agency as kind of like an assistant caseworker in some ways. And I love it, but at the same time, so many of the problems that my clients are experiencing are not due to any like fault of their own. It's due to the problems from the immigration system to the bureaucracy of social services. Um, you know, and it's, it's like, well, if we could fix these problems, they wouldn't be having these problems and we could work on other things. Um, but I've also found, um, this other kind of social work called macro social work, which does do more with like policy, advocacy, grant writing. Um, And so that's where I'm looking at heading next, just because it's a one-year program. And then 
going back to law school later in life. But um, yeah, I totally agree with you there. It's it's very frustrating being in that connector role sometimes. Um, second thing, I want you to say more about the connections that you see between spirituality and law um, and maybe you could talk about your capstone a little bit because I know it, it deals with that in some way um, wherever you want to take that. Yeah so my capstone um, for global studies so I'm doing two capstones since I'm a double major but last semester was when I completed my global studies capstone. Um, and I looked at the role of the sacred in international relations between um, Sitka Klinkit um, people and um, the Russian Orthodox Church and then American Presbyterians um, and sort of what that looked like. And um, to some extent, their relations with other indigenous um, tribes and nations, I called them nations and states. Um, in there to sort of be put it on the same level as um, IR theory because that's I think problematic in itself is that IR theory as it is today excludes um, actually the majority of the world um, and so anyway so that was sort of the point um, of that capstone and it really got me thinking about um, what it means to be secular like what is the separation of church and state why is it that um, we say that we're um, you know a free nation or whatever, um, but we've never had a non-Christian president. Um, and there was all this outrage around um, Obama, potentially, maybe, could he be Muslim? Like, <laughs> you know, all this stuff that that would have been a deciding factor in his presidency. Um, so uh, I think that, I, I mean, I have a deeply held belief that spirituality and the sacred in so many different forms um, connect everybody on earth. I think that a person would be hard pressed to find someone who hasn't experienced the sacred in one way or another. Um, and it looks different for everybody. And yet, um, at least in Western um, law and Western culture, um, we try so hard to keep the sacred and keep religion and keep spirituality out of the law. Um, and I think in some ways that kind of backfires on us. Um, like we saw in the mid 20th century, the rise of evangelical fundamentalism, um, and that had plenty of influence on the law. Um, and today we're seeing um, a similar rise um, or retaliation against the 60s and 70s. Um, and so I think that that's, uh, that's my area of focus, if that kind of <laughs> answers the question is like, yeah, why do we exclude that from the law when it has such a huge impact? Um, and, and I should say that I don't really know what that looks like. Like, that's kind of right. why I, I want to go in there. I'm not thinking, like, everyone must follow these spiritual guidelines. Like, that's not, a, you know, that's not. Right, right, no. <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess, would you, would you say that, I guess both of you, would you say that you are motivated by any sort of spiritual um, understanding or like whether it's like officially a part of a, a religious system or not maybe like a humanistic understanding of the world. Um, could each of you comment on that? I'm just curious. Sure. Um, so I, it's really interesting because Juliana, while you were talking, um, it reminded, I, I was thrown back to my jurisprudence class in law school. I think you'll have a really good time with, with that. Um, one of the things that I've become really interested in is earth jurisprudence, um, which 
has kind of been promulgated by um, a, a man named Thomas Berry, who is um, a, a Jesuit priest in the Catholic Church. And so he had, he, you know, kind of promoted this idea that because we're so interconnected with the natural world and, um, you know, humans and nature can't really be delineated if you really think about, you know, the way the world works and our interconnectedness, um, that nature really is deserving of rights. And so it's, and the way that our legal system, <clears throat> excuse me, is, is organized is treating nature as property under the law. And so give this idea of giving nature rights the same way that human beings have rights or corporations have rights and even animals in some senses have rights under the law um, would be a much more protective and um, sort of uh, would honor sort of that sacred connection um, of human beings to the earth um, under the law. And I, it, it's something that I've been really passionate about as not necessarily in my work, but sort of a, a movement that I follow. It's called the Rights of Nature Movement. And um, it really, I mean, it, it speaks to my view of the world, my view of our spiritual connection to the world. And um, I'd really love to see our, our legal system reflect that. Um, and, you know, it, it's true. Our Western legal system is very much informed by the perceptions that we have of our relationship to each other, our relationship to the idea of, of property and, and Christianity and Christian ideas about property and gender roles and all kinds of things. So it's, yeah, hmm. it informs my, my, my thinking about the law and thinking about the system. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I also think that it, it goes back to yeah, like what is the role of humanity on the earth? Is it is it to steward the earth and take care of it? Or is it to have like dominion over it in the sense of like taking control of things as resources rather than as living um, things? And, um, and that's where indigenous traditions are so important um, because there's this reverence for um, for the earth and, and living things, um, and really this, um, obligation to take care of it. And it, it's so, um, counter to what Western civilization is. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it, it's really interesting because as you, as you learn more in the law, if, if either of you go to law school, um, eventually it, you just start to see all those influences from, from Christian ways of thinking and, the rights of nature movement is very much informed and driven by indigenous communities who have a different way of thinking about the world and yeah yeah and even this you know this jesuit priest that you're talking about uh you know he's coming with a christian worldview but he isn't uh the, he doesn't have the same kind of worldview that says let's like take over the earth and control things he's saying no let's you know, take care of it and steward it. So um, there's even a conflict too within um, within one religious system, right? Oh, sure. I mean, there's absolutely diversity no matter what. And the Jesuits are a little bit more of a uh, maybe mystical sect of Christianity. And um, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, Juliana, did you have anything to add on to that? Yeah, um, so in terms of my own, I guess, spirituality or belief system, um, I was raised Lutheran um, in the ELCA. And um, I would say, uh, just to sort of take a, a phrase from one of my um, Norwegian professors, um, that is to say a, a professor whose class I took in Norway, um, um, I like to hold my faith in an open hand, right? Mm. It's, um, it can change. I, it's not something that, um, that I cling to necessarily. I, I cling to my spirituality, um, right. institution, right. Of, of right. ELCA Lutheranism, um, that sort of thing. Um, and that way I also can't like hit people with it because my hands not closed around it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but I, I would say, you know, um, in pursuing a JD MPS, um, that just as Chelsea was saying, um, so many of our laws, um, are influenced by Christianity and by this very patriarchal, um, domination driven, um, dualistic way of thinking that has been Christianity for the past several hundred, if not thousands of years. And, um, and so there's a big part of me spiritually that feels like, um, the first step in changing the legal system is addressing the theology, um, the Christian theology and mm -hmm. taking responsibility for like, Hey, as a Christian, this is something that, uh, really kind of <laughs> determined a not so cool path that we went down, um, you know, and pinpointing that in the theology and, and sort of fighting fire with fire in that sense, like being on the same level as, you know, Augustine and, um, some of these other big, um, Christian patriarchs, um, that we're still grappling with today, you know, as a woman or, um, as an eco-feminist, um, you know, that sort of thing, um, so I think that's kind of where my spirituality plays into all of that. Yeah. Mm, I love it. Yes. Um, addressing theology is so important. It's interesting because I think the general public is not, I mean, we don't have a general public of theology nerds, right? And yet these deep theological questions and um, theological leanings contribute to these ideologies and people aren't even aware of that. Um, and so I find that really interesting, just how deeply ingrained um, theological interpretation is in everyday life. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so switching gears a little bit, um, I know you both have studied away a lot. Um, and specifically in Oxford. So I was wondering, like, what was your biggest takeaway from, I guess, either Oxford or any of your um, study away experiences? Um, and yeah, Chelsea, do you want to go first? Oh my God, such a huge question. <laughs> uh, wow. Um, I, I can limit it to Oxford, maybe. That would be, <laughs> otherwise, I think we're going to be here. Might for be easier. <laughs> Um, well, let's see, when I was at Oxford, I was studying international human rights law specifically, it was a summer program. Um, I have to say that's actually one of the programs where I felt most alive 
ever in my life. Um, I was surrounded by a group of people from different parts of the world, from my own university, from Oxford, who are all extremely brilliant people, um, extremely passionate people, and so aligned. I've never been with a group of people I felt so aligned with um, as I did in Oxford. And um, I mean, that even includes PLU. I, I feel very aligned with PLU um, just because it's, I think it's a place that people come to because the mission of PLU and, and what PLU stands for really resonates with them. But um, even at Oxford, I think I felt just so aligned with, with everyone there and what, you know, the, the work that we were talking about and the issues that we were talking about. Um, I took a couple of seminars in um, international human rights law and specifically in economic, social and cultural rights law. And that really was sort of the, the keystone of, of my understanding about what area of law I'm passionate about. Um, because it did take me back to my previous study way experiences where I was doing international development work and international human rights research um, when I was in Norway and in Namibia. In Norway specifically, I was um, interning with an organization that actually works on the ground in Namibia um, to, at the time we were, they were expanding um, educational access in nomadic communities. And so I was helping out on that project. And then the next year I went and spent um, the spring semester um, in Namibia working for an, another organization um, doing research into the way that communities use international human rights instruments to um, advocate locally. And so I was really exposed to um, these human rights issues and not really realizing like what sort of umbrella of field of law they fall under, but um, you know, just kind of having in my head, like these are human rights issues. Like they're talking about food security, access to healthcare, access to sanitation, access to housing. And um, you know, like those, those things fall under this umbrella of economic, social and cultural rights. And, and I would also add to that list environmental rights. And so um, that really kind of like getting to see that and having that resonate with me while, while I was studying away during my time at PLU and then having that sort of solidified as like my passion area at Oxford was really cool. Um, and that's sort of where I kind of solidified. I mean, I was, it was after my first year of law school when I kind of figured out like, oh, this is really, this is, this is the field of law. Like this is what I'm trying to get at. Um, I had that kind of revelation at Oxford and I think that was sort of, sort of a highlight. The other highlight was just, you know, being around these people who are just so inspiring and so brilliant and, you know, whose energy that you can just really feed off is, is amazing. Um, there was something else that I thought of while I was talking that I wanted to add. Um, I think it just proves, you know, that you, you know, you're saying like, I don't really know the fields of law, Juliana, like that I'm interested in, or I, I don't want to pigeonhole myself. I just want to, just want to say like, that's not possible at this stage, <laughs> you know, like when, even when you come out of law school and you're studying for the bar exam, I think most of us, we didn't know like what we were really getting into. And um, I kind of had to pivot myself because I, I kind of, you know, solidified this, you know, this concept that like, okay, economic, social and environmental rights and cultural rights, like that's, that's my, my jam, right? And, but then when you get out of law school, it's like, okay, well, what does that look like in a legal career? 
And, you know, a lot of it is environmental law if you're going to be living in the United States and practicing as a lawyer. And so I kind of pivoted into environmental law a little bit and started, you know, looking for local, you know, domestic environmental law jobs to get my feet wet. So I think it's just, it's not possible to pigeonhole yourself. That's what I'm trying to say. And it's, it's okay if you don't know exactly, you know, what, you know, how that's going to, how your interests are going to solidify into a, a career after law school. Um, yeah, jump in. So um, things that I, I learned from my travel experiences, I guess. Um, first of all, rolling with the punches. I am such a planner. Like I have to plan everything and feel like I have some sort of control over my life. <laughs> like, you know, Me too. Going, like plan all of the itineraries, all that sort of thing. Um, but I think that the more I traveled, first of all, the less I packed. Like the first time I traveled and I actually grew up traveling a lot with my family. So my mom, um, has she's a French teacher she um studied abroad in France when she was like 16 and is still in really good contact with her um host parents then and so I call them like my French grandparents so every three years growing up we would do this big international trip um where like my parents had saved up their airline miles for like three years in between our last trip and then we do canyon fairs for, for people we knew um and so I sort of grew up surrounded by travel um but traveling alone was really what taught me to like you know you can make a plan and god laughs right like you know and so um so just sort of being able to take a breath and let it go and kind of roll with it um not that not to never plan I'm still a planner um but maybe don't <laughs> you know hold on to that plan so much that it causes stress um Oxford specifically taught me how to write um, and read uh, quickly and efficiently, I think, um, because just because of the, the Oxford Gateway program at PLU, that is such a different environment from, from PLU's environment in terms of, um, I don't want to say the support you get, but kind of the support you get, like your, your tutor expects you to pull your own weight um, and be operating um, as, as you would in a tutorial at Oxford. <laughs> and so, um, that was a steep learning curve that I really think I'll benefit from, uh, for the rest of my life. Um, and of course, just the people that I met, you know, I, um, I actually, for my personal statement in law school applications, talked about a guy named Chris that I met, um, when I was in Oxford, who, um, sat under a Tesco, um, that was on my way home every day after tutorial. And, uh, and I eventually just started sitting with him and we'd eat and talk and hang out and talk about life. Um, and, uh, and I think that that in itself was a really, um, you know, the people, people I met specifically, Chris, you know, just thinking about the ways we interact with each other um and there were days when I would go and sit with Chris and we wouldn't even talk about anything he just wanted to sit there in silence and like what does the role of silence play in our relationships with one another um and so I think that yeah I guess those would be the big three the big three things um <laughs> I could you know like Chelsea said I could go on for hours but <laughs> I'll yeah. <pick> those ones <laughs> yeah no I I just asked because i studied away as well and um, both in Oaxaca and in Oxford and the 
these times were completely life-changing for me and I know they are for a lot of people. Um, just getting to see other parts of the world and the way that other people live is so important and so transformative to just take you away from the things that we take for granted, I think. Um, and yeah, I could also talk for hours about my study abroad experiences as well. But um, so I'm going to transition to the next segment. Um, I asked you to prepare some questions ahead of time. Um, so it's kind of like a quick fire round, um, but not actually that quick fire, just I want to hear your answers. Um, so the question number one, um, what's your Enneagram number and description? I don't know if you're super into Enneagram, but I think it's telling of personality sometimes. So um, Chelsea, what's yours? So I actually had to um, take an evaluation to answer this because I have not heard of Enneagram before. Um, I, when I was at PLU, the big question was, what is your Myers-Briggs type? So oh, okay. It was, yeah. I'm an INFJ under the Myers-Briggs type. Um, my Enneagram actually had two. I had equal parts one and four. Huh. And four um, is known as the individualist. Fours want to be unique and live life authentically and are highly attuned to their emotional experience, mm -hmm. which I actually thought was, was probably quite accurate for me. And then type one is maybe the, the part, the one of the two that I think I would more readily um, adopt <laughs> knowledge about myself. Um, but type one says can be thought of as the perfectionist who placed a lot of emphasis on following the rules and doing things correctly. And I think yeah. that's probably also accurate, but I'm not going to um, admit that. So, um, well, especially know. as someone who's in law, I think that <laughs> number one makes a lot of sense, but you know, four might be your true personality. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, there's, there's something that you notice when you go to law school is that there's as, as much as you may dislike some of your other classmates, there really is something that is connecting all of you. Like you all have a little bit of neuroticism, you yes. know, under <laughs> the surface. Um, we don't like to acknowledge it though, some of us. So I'll just, I'll say I'm a type four. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. How about you, Juliana? So my Myers-Briggs is an ENFJ, so that's funny. <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> that's great. my Instagram is a number two. Um, which, according to one website, is described as the helper, the caring interpersonal, interpersonal type. Um, so, and and actually, my number two was like in the ninety percent something, and then the rest of them were like something pretty close together. So I had like four and one, um, and for my next like closest aligned or something. Um, so yeah, I I'm not super into enneagrams like I just don't really know that much about them and so um I've taken I think this is the second time I took the test and I don't remember what I got the first time um mm -hmm. but uh yeah this was the um Enneagram coach uh website <laughs> I just think they're a fun tool to like yeah, for sure see like what your personality might be so funny story i am also an enfj and a two so you and i are the same okay question number two this one's fun if you could have dinner with anyone from history who would it be and why so 
I spent a little while on this one while I was um, preparing. And I have a few different, I think, acceptable answers, but I'm going to go with um, my grandpa. My grandpa was, I mean, really sort of an incredible powerhouse of a man, like a social justice advocate through and through. Um, and uh, I was, he, we were like best friends and I was a fan and I like to think he was mine and everything and so um I've noticed that as I um have gotten older there's so much more that I've wanted to tell him and so much more that I want to hear um from him and so um I, I, he passed away when I was 18 actually during my first year at BLU and um and that's such a like transformational time that now I'm like, yeah, your timing was awful. <laughs> so, like, um, so that's my, that's my answer. The other ones were like, you know, Jesus. <laughs> um, or like some of the very first Christians um, that were like, you know, before Christianity became institutionalized yes. around like 351, uh, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. So, Good answers. Yeah, really great answers. Um, so one of the reasons that this always stumps me is because I think of, I always think of the people who I admire the most, you know, and in, in my life and whose careers I'm like really, you know, envious of or, or who I really admire. And so I always think of people like Albie Sachs. He's a, a South African jurist and anti-apartheid activist who really kind of influenced my interest in, in becoming a lawyer um, when that idea first started kindling. Um, or Nelson Mandela, same, you know, one of the other lawyers who's in, who inspired me to want to be a lawyer, or um, like, you know, legal jurists that I really, you know, admire, like Peter Ginsburg or Louis Brandeis. But then I think, you know, having dinner with those people would be extremely intimidating. And do I really want to have dinner with them? I don't know if I do. I maybe want to meet them and shake their hand and say, you know, like ask them like the one burning question that I have and then leave. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so that I, you know, I really love your answer about having dinner with your grandfather. My grandfather, um, was a Lutheran pastor and he was, um, a, a chaplain in the military during World War II. Mm -hmm. And, um, as you know, from what I know, he, after the war, during the cold war, he helped, um, get German prisoners of war out of Russia. And I think he did some really interesting stuff and I never got to meet him. He died before I was born. Um, so that one actually like that <laughs> makes me think like, yeah, maybe that would be a good person to have dinner with. Um, and I, you know, like my mom and my grandmother had stories about him and apparently he was a very like outspoken, you know, sociable person and, you know, a life of the party. So that actually, <laughs> now, now I have a really great answer for that question. Um, but one of the, one of the people that I um, did kind of land on is I think I would like to have dinner with some of the early female comedians, like some of the first, like feminist comedians like um, Joan Rivers mm. or um, like Moms Mabley or, um, you know, cause I, you know, they'd be a lot of fun. They're entertaining, they're down to earth, but you know, also like very, very tough, very resilient, a lot of life experience there. Um, yeah, I could go on with a whole list of people, but. Wow, those are um, all really great answers, honestly. <laughs> you just throw a whole dinner party and invite all of those people. Yeah, sounds great. <laughs> so um, what is the best piece of advice that you've received? Um, Juliana, do you want to go first? Yeah, so 
so um again my grandpa um he used to have this phrase i think he took it from a tv show um he'd say who's the dummy writing the show anyway so if i was complaining about something in my life um he'd say twina who's the dummy writing the show anyway as a way to sort of challenge me um to change things in my life um with which i'm unhappy um and i think that he was coming from a place of like Juliana, you have the agency and the privilege to do that. And it's a disservice to yourself um, and to those who don't have that privilege to be complacent. Um, and so I think that that's one. He also would say, um, he, he was really good at like raising one eyebrow. And if I was like, you know, talking about a boundary that one of my friends crossed or something like that, um, he'd say, Juliana, push. He'd be like, push, Juliana, like push back, you know? And so even today in, um, in various situations throughout my life, uh, where I'm like, oh, that was a boundary. Like, <laughs> you know, I have my, uh, as much as I hate to admit it, I think that I am a, a tiny bit non-confrontational um, on, on my own behalf. Like on behalf of others, I'll be the first one there, you know, but on my own behalf, I find it um, more difficult to like push back. And so I have my um, my grandpa's voice with his little eyebrow in my, in my head going like, push, Juliana, who's the dummy writing the show anyway. <laughs> oh, I love yeah, that. Yeah, you want to keep that in your head when you go to law school, for sure. Because <laughs> <laughs> it will be confrontational. How about you? I had a very similar experience, actually. I, I went into law school being a relatively non-confrontational person and came out like very comfortable now with, with confrontation. So um it's a it's a it's a great way to to grow during law school. Good opportunity. Um, you know, I think I had a really hard time with this question also because there's been so much, you know, good advice that I've been able to take advantage of. And I think you know what the best advice really depends on who you are. And so I, there's a lot of great advice out there, but if it doesn't resonate with what you need then it, you know, isn't the best advice. And so I think for me, like going back to my Enneagram type, <laughs> I am a bit of a perfectionist sometimes. And um, so like some of the best advice I've received is about kind of that like perfectionism. Like one of the things that I thought of initially was like get approval from yourself first. And so like the idea being, you don't need to please everybody. You don't need to have it be like the, you don't need to be the best. You don't need to be um, perfect. <laughs> but if you're okay with what you're presenting, like if you're happy with what like decision you're making, um, you know, it's kind of like who's writing the show anyway. It's like, it's you, it's up to you. It's your life. Um, are you okay with the decisions that you're making and, and the work product that you're putting out there? Um, so good approval from yourself first is always a good one um, for me. Yeah, because you always have to live with you, you know. Mm -hmm. mm, that's good. <laughs> um, and then what book have you read recently that you would recommend people read? I actually have a book here. I read this um, very recently. It's really related to um, the kind of work that I do. It's called The Triumph of Doubt. It's by David Michaels and the, the subheading is Dark Money and the Science of Deception. And it talks about how um, science is used 
not to promote the solving of social solutions, but to um, generate doubt and um, prevent, you know, regulations from being passed or laws from being um, promulgated that would undermine certain corporate interests. I think it's very, very good. It's by, um, the, the author used to be a secretary of labor for the Occupational Health and Safety Association Administration, OSHA. Um, so he um, talks about his experience with, with that concept happening in, 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 in his life and in, in the United States during his time as uh, Secretary of Labor. So. Yeah, I'll add that to my read yeah. list. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, I would say Nadia Boltzweber's Shameless mm. is one, and it's a super good sort of intro to feminist theology. Uh, because she, you know, talks about some of the other big name um, feminist theologians and other things, but it's also, you know, a really affirmational, um, good, just a good, like, good for your heart kind of read. Um, and Nadia Wells-Weber is just incredible. She's a wonderful human. Um, and so I've read a lot of her stuff. Um, so that's the one that I, I have bought copies of that book to like, give to people and I'm like, you have to read this now and the gift, I expect you to read it. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah. And I'd yeah. say, I'd say that book's really accessible to, for people that aren't as much in the theology nerd camp. Cause sometimes when you're reading a book on theology, it can be really heady and not approachable. Um, but she really breaks things down, um, in a, in a very like pastoral voice because she is a pastor. Oh yeah. It reads like, like a conversation or like you're texting with someone, not, I mean, not texting, but like a more casual, like, you know, relating to you on your level rather than a like, um, and this is what this biblical exegesis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd also super recommend uh, her book, Accidental Saints. Um, that's a really good one, too. Um, well, we are uh, coming to the end of our time here, um, but I do want to know what advice would you have for current um, students who are, you know, thinking maybe they might want to go into law um, or, you know, they might want to study abroad? Um, what would you what would you say to them? Oh man, this is another question. You could have me here for hours. You know, I have a whole organization that talks to law students about, you know, being becoming lawyers and, and finding their, their calling in law. Um, but well, I think what I would what I would say, and, and this is something that came up in our conversation that um, I thought of while you while you two were talking about your your interest in your potential interest in law. You don't have to become a lawyer to be an excellent policy advocate. Mm. And in fact, a lot of the best, you know, a lot of the, the policy advocates who are doing really like groundbreaking work right now, they're not lawyers. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind. If you are considering a path in the law, if there is an area of policy that you are really passionate about, whether it's in social work or environmental policy, you don't have to get a law degree to do that. And in fact, um, it may serve you better not to because law school can be, um, uh, what, do, what do I wanna say? Law school can be a little draining um, if you, and you might kind of lose 
steam <laughs> if you if you aren't super passionate about really understanding the law and you're just really excited about a certain policy area. Um, so that's one thing I would say. For study abroad, um, I would say like absolutely do it. <laughs> Go into it with you know an open mind and and few expectations because the fewer expectations you have, the better time you're going to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say similarly for studying abroad. Um, oh my gosh, yeah, like you you have to. I mean, <laughs> there are so many. I've had so many friends that are like. I just can't, like, I just can't leave now. Now's not a good time. I'm like, that means you have to go. That means go now. Like, that's, you know, it's never yes. going to be a good time. And honestly, your college years are going to be the best time from what I've heard. Like, when you can get it paid for and you can, like, you know, all that's appeal. You have such an incredible study away program. There's really no, and as tour guides were, like, trained to talk about that specifically, like, you might have to plan ahead a little more in some degrees as opposed to others. But, like, but you really have to do it just because of the personal growth and the confidence um, and the and the relationships that you build. It's like, it's such, oh my gosh, it's such an invaluable experience. Um, in terms of law school, now that I've um, just finished all my applications and started getting um, acceptances in, um, also start planning for the LSAT like way ahead of time. <laughs> it's, uh, my understanding is that it's not gonna matter eventually, but it matters to get in. Um, and, uh, and then I had, you know, a couple of safety schools that I applied to, and then some reach schools I applied to, you know, the Ivy League, um, and that sort of thing just to kind of see, um, so I wasn't plagued by the what if for the rest of my life. Um, and, and then just sort of allowing yourself some grace that it's, it's a really hard, um, process. It's like taking a whole nother class or set of classes. Like I started studying for the LSAT in, um, June of 2020, like beginning of June, end of May. And I took a practice LSAT every, like a full one every Saturday until I took the test. Um, and I also did like the tutoring. I bought the books. Like I did all of that um, and took the test in um, the middle of November. Um, and so I would say like planning ahead and really budgeting for that. Or if you qualify, if you think you might qualify for fee waivers, like get on that application process soon. Um, because it takes a little while, um, and law school applications and the LSAT, all of that adds up to a, a lot of money, and that's a problem in itself, but it's really not super accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to search for the loopholes, um, as with many areas of the law, but anyway, <laughs> that's, um, that's what I would say just from, like, now that I'm fresh out of application time, um, um, that, that would be my, um, advice asking again in 10 years (laughs) (laughs) well thank you both so much for your time this has been such a fun conversation um and I know you're both really busy (laughs) but it was really great to connect and um yeah I hope to keep in touch with both of you thank you so much yeah likewise thanks for having me (laughs) yeah well have a great rest of your day thank you thanks you too You've been listening to Wild Geese Work and Wonder, a podcast made in collaboration with the Wild Hope Center for Vocation at PLU. This episode you heard from Chelsea Lindsley, Class of 2010, and Juliana Andrew, Class of 2021. You can learn more about Chelsea's organization, The Law School Project, by following at Law School Project on Instagram. 
Our music was composed by Emma Christensen. We also want to express gratitude for the works of the late Mary Oliver, whose poem, Wild Geese, inspired the name for this show. I'm your host, Becca McAnally. Stay up to date on all things Wild Hope by following us on Instagram at PLU Wild Hope and by going to our website, plu.edu vocation. If you'd like to get in touch, send us an email at wildhope at plu.edu.